You are listening to The Art of Abolition. In this podcast, we join the abolitionist conversations on prison and policing through sharing the art and perspectives of those directly impacted by mass incarceration in the United States. Each episode, we bring to you information, conversations, testimonials, stories, writing, and music that centers the experiences of those most impacted by the prison industrial complex. We believe in a world without prisons and seek to expand our understanding of the work that must be done in order to achieve this goal, while at the same time analyzing our own privileges and systemic biases. This episode, we're focusing on the ongoing battle with the spread of COVID-19 in prisons. Millions of us around the globe have felt the impact of COVID-19. The spread of the virus has upended our everyday realities and drastically altered the world as we know it. While many of us have faced a difficult pandemic experience, it has become increasingly clear over the last several months that in a public health crisis, certain populations are bound to suffer most. In the United States, where nearly 2.3 million people are currently behind bars, the incarcerated population has remained among the most vulnerable of contracting and transmitting COVID-19. The inhumane living conditions in jails, prisons, and detention centers make social distancing and maintaining a sanitary environment, which are regarded as the most important preventative measures, virtually impossible. As a result, according to a report by Professor Kevin T. Schneppel, people who are incarcerated in the U.S. are four times more likely to be infected with COVID-19 and twice as likely to die from the illness. The idea that um, people are just doing time is the farthest thing from the truth. The reality is this. Prison is a death sentence. Even if you have 45 years to do in prison, prison is a death sentence. Bottom line. This is Nascimento Blair, who was incarcerated at a correctional facility in New York State when the rampant spread of COVID-19 in prisons first began. Blair was released a few months later and spoke with a dedicated member of our team, Mackenzie Turgeon, about their experience grappling with the threat of the virus in an environment with no access to protective equipment, little to no communication with the outside world, and a negligent prison staff and administration. An officer came there one day, right? She worked the rec area. The rec area is usually attached to the housing units. That's how that jail is set up. So she was noticeably sick. She was coughing. So she came onto the unit. And inside of the unit, there's like a, a, a square where the um, because the unit is set up with rooms. And it's set up with um, dorms. Dorm is literally an arm's length away from the next person. And you are just, you are in things, um, what they call cubes. And it's just a piece of wood about 10 inches wide that would have you separated from the next man's bed. In any event, um, she came inside the dorm area and she was coughing. And there were people on the kiosk because, you know, JP um, brought tablets to the prison. So guys were telling her, listen, you're coughing, you know, you know, be easy and stuff like that. And she got real nasty about it, say, well, I'm here now. This was a Saturday that she came into the dorm to work. The Monday we saw the sergeant, which is her supervisor, escort her out the block to where we were and escort her through the gate. She was sick. They didn't want her there. In any event, before all this happened, Thursday... A lot of guys overheard her 
saying um she just came from a cruise she came off a cruise from italy and they actually allowed her to come back they allowed her to come in and she was sick and she was coughing she was visibly sick and i think she brought it to the facility their their claim is that they tested it they tested her and found out that she wasn't um COVID-19 positive but she was locked out of the facility for two weeks in all actuality we heard about the pandemic from December it seems to me that people who are incarcerated are way more cognizant of what is going on in society than the people who are in society another thing I've noticed like before I um, continue is the people who are incarcerated are way have way more manners than the people who are in society people in society are very disrespectful and they really really don't care so we've been heard about it from december and um we used to make light of it make joke of it because the reality was we were in um an already quarantined space exile like we like to call it from society so because of that we used to just say it's never gonna hit us it's never gonna hit us not taken into consideration the guards leaving and um returning we became aware of the severity of the pandemic about say about two weeks after we were locked down because we were locked down in march two weeks after we were locked down we became aware because then we heard that it was spreading because one thing about the prison system while everything is interconnected what what goes on in one prison somehow you hear in, in another prison, no matter how far apart they are. If, if it goes on in Denimora County, in Clinton, someone in Sing Sing who's in Westchester County could hear and you will hear because you know people write people, people have families that link together and people, families are formed through this bond of adversity and they stay together. So you will hear. So we heard um, that there were other people in other facilities who were contracting this. So now a lot of people started to worry like, what is coming in the prison system? Then the um, somewhat um, the fear started and people were taking extra measures to ensure that they were um, doing what they needed to do, the, the, the wash your hands, which most people in prison usually do anyway. At least that was done. At least that was done, I should say. But as far as mask and sanitizer, we know that would have never happened because you cannot have alcohol in prison and sanitizer has alcohol in it. The CDC's COVID-19 guidelines advise using hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol to prevent getting sick and spreading germs to others. But as Blair just explained, hand sanitizer and any products containing alcohol are often considered contraband in prisons, with 17 state correctional systems maintaining hand sanitizer bans in the midst of the pandemic. This blatant disregard for the health, well-being, and livelihood of incarcerated people is only further demonstrated by the fact that incarcerated workers in states like Nebraska are producing hand sanitizer to address statewide shortages for next to nothing wages, yet are prohibited from using the very same product. In light of these injustices, many incarcerated people organize efforts to confront the prison administration and demand access to personal protective equipment. Blair tells us more about the role of self-advocacy in prison during the pandemic. In, in prison, you have um, a committee that's called ILC. It's the Inmate Liaison Committee. They're like the jail politicians. These are the, the, the committee who gets the grievances of the prison and takes it to the administration, where they sit and they parlay and come up with solutions. The ILC kept on meeting with the administrative body in prison. 
and they kept on requesting certain things because we heard on the outside this is how people were combating this like you said ppes you know hand sanitizers um mask um little things like this they requested probably um the administrative body said no they're not giving us anything and none of that so you could just guess that the prison population were left at the behest of how diligent they were in just following something as simple as you know washing their hands continually and um ensuring that they do not inhale the same air as someone who had something like the common flu because even the even people who we knew that cough all year around with the common flu people started to become very paranoid where i've seen people got shouted at because they coughed and you know guys were telling them yo listen put your hands in, put cough inside of your shirt it, the, the, the entire situation made people very uncomfortable so because of that um there were many of the men who were fighting to get this people write grievances grievances when is um administrative remedy that you could uh, use to ensure that what is due you are given so they started um file grievances and it's a legal document so the facility has to answer and then even they decided that um if they said yes to the mask they would say no to the hand sanitizer because of the alcohol content and it took a lot of time because i don't even think they did give them they didn't they didn't give them hand sanitizer what happened is that they made a, they came up with a compromise they decided that um the place that they call Porter Pool, who dispenses the, the chemicals, the, the garbage bags, all these things for different blocks, would give people bleach. They would give bleach to the porters, and the porters would um, bleach down the phones and different, different things. So that's what happened. They use bleach on the phones, and the common areas where people touch or harbor, they would use bleach to clean those places. So that's what happened. They There was no oh we're gonna give you guys this or we're gonna ensure that you guys get the ppes or anything like that there was none of that it was a lot of di dialogue it was a lot of hand wringing to even get the mask which eventually we did when it got really really serious because you know there were officers coming in there they were sick noticeably sick I didn't know I didn't know too much of what to feel or what to expect I've never know I've never been in a pandemic before um being in prison for 14 and a half years you tend to block out um uh, a lot of expectations of oh I gotta go I gotta do this I gotta do um this stuff and that stuff but at the appointed day like about a week to my appointed on um, release date I start. I began to worry, cause I was never worried before. I began to worry because I was like, "Wow, you go through all these things, you know, been through riots, been through lockdowns in the maxes, and then being inside of this place that we were in, and you die from something that you've never seen, instead of something you can see and something you can fight your way out and and um, you can, you know, survive it, cause you can fight your way out of it." Now, when this came to the prison shore or the prison walls, there was a worry 
because you know you have so many things in prison you could die from you could die from cancerous food you could die from staph infection you could die from getting stabbed you know you could die from so many different things you could die from just any type of sickness because of um maltreatment anything like that but then here comes something another enemy something else that you cannot see that you cannot detect and that the facility have never seen people in the scene so they have no way i go go about dealing with this they have no understanding they have no experience where this is concerned so that was like a big word for a lot of people like finally you're at the finish line and just before you go over the finish line you get clipped by an unforeseen force so there were people who i knew as myself i were we were worried and that that was our worry like here comes something that you know we are unaware of so that's what happened we were more on a, um, worried about not making it home because of this. On the outside, organizers and advocacy groups have been working tirelessly to spread awareness of the danger of COVID-19 in prisons and hold the government accountable for their failure to address the immediate needs of human beings facing a deadly virus without the resources to protect themselves. Forum for Understanding Prisons, or FFUP, is a nonprofit advocacy group based in Wisconsin that has been working directly with incarcerated people since 2004. Meet Ty Renfro and Jim from FFUP, who joined us to talk about the history of the organization and their ongoing work. I'm Ty Renfro. Um, I am not in school. I work in the like nonprofit music field. Um, but I did go through the federal um, criminal justice process. I'm a federal felon, and I sort of got involved in the, the, that process when um, I had a friend who was also a federal, like in federal probation. Um, so I like just saw firsthand how that process works, and then second and secondhand how that process works, and then firsthand after that. Um, I started with FFUP like a year and a half ago, or maybe more than that, two years ago. And I think I really came about working with them because uh, there was nowhere else that could do the work that I wanted to do. Um, FFUP is like, ha has been around for, for quite some time and has focused on direct support to prisoners who are, um, yeah, who've reached out. And so that really, there is no um, limit to what type of prisoners or who could be contacted and are contacting us and, and in need of assistance. Um, but additionally, like trying to take those um, various un unique cases of prisoners and, and what they're going through and trying to find the, the threads that kind of connect them um, and using collective power to follow up and um, address things within the DOC using massive numbers and and reporting and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, having uh, there's there's tons of different like reentry groups and, and other um, reform reformist um, organizations here in Wisconsin that are dealing with prisons. But FFUP is closer to the abolition side and and doing the type of work that I that I wanted to do. Um, I also belong to Black and Pink. I'm Jim. I use they, them pronouns. Basically, my, you know, sort of adventure to, that led to abolition was just uh, 
you know, it grew out of like me. I'm just being an anarchist and, um, you know, an anti-authoritarian uh, prisons being the most uh, clear and obvious affront to civil liberties and uh, people's ability to be free. Um, connected with Ty and a couple other people two or three years ago, um, and we started working on various projects. That's how I got involved with FFUP. Uh, we started the MKE Lit Supply with a couple other friends, which we distribute uh, literature to prisoners. Um, and yeah, that's really just taken up. That's how I've been spending a lot of the, the free time that, you know, doing prisoner support and supporting FFUP. Pretty similarly, uh, I knew somebody who was, I knew Ben who was working with FFUP and I had offered to help him with a couple of projects. And then at a certain point, I just connected with Peg directly, who is the, I guess, founder. Um, she's like the main, the main drive behind FFUP. Uh, she maintains the website. She has thousands of contacts in the prisons and she's um, organized, does a lot of the organizing. And so then just over the last maybe year or so, developing a better relationship more directly with Peg and helping her with specific administrative tasks or data collection or things along those lines. That's kind of um, what I've been doing. I also try and um, not necessarily related to FFUP, but via FFUP, uh, connect people with pen pals and do that sort of direct, um, you know, sort of community bridge. Uh, type work. After a super maximum prison was built in Boscobel, Wisconsin, Peg Swan was inspired to begin supporting and communicating with incarcerated people. This soon evolved into a much larger network of support, and the Forum for Understanding Prisons was born. FFUP is driven by the voices and experiences of those impacted by mass incarceration. Their blog, prisonforum.org, provides direct insight by publishing letters and testimonials from incarcerated people, as well as direct support by collecting donations and redistributing the funds to help meet people's needs. Such a platform proved to be most essential during the COVID-19 outbreak, as it allowed hundreds of incarcerated people across the state of Wisconsin to communicate with the public and share how they were impacted by the virus. Back um, when COVID started, one of the campaigns we um, we're like we're really trying to push was um, getting uh, clemency waiver requests to prisoners and collecting them from prisoners so that they we could like have a record of them being sent and like truly really try to make sure that we knew that those were were actually going to the governor in mass. Um, so we collected like hundreds, I think, of um, like one hundred and thirty-five or something. Yeah, a hundred over a hundred different individuals in their clemency waiver requests, um, you know, or, or sentence commutation requests. I think that's what they're doing now. That's what they're doing now. It was clemency, clemency at the time. Requests. Um, and so, yeah, we, we like threw every single one of those up on the, on the web. And yeah, I mean, you can tell on, on our web page on the prison forum that, you know, there are a variety of prisoners who want to share how they're feeling. Um, and we try our best not to censure or, um, you know, go look through any of those, what they, those people are trying to state. Um, everyone should have a voice. And we believe that uh, that's at the very least, there's there should be a place for people to to voice those. Um, 
So I try to be, try to be, uh, I guess, what do you call that? As transparent and uh, forward with their communications as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, being able to, being able to like collect those things and put them up on the web so that anyone interested can go and actually see the number of people who are affected and the, and the number of people who have the exact same like situation going on in their prison, um, in their tier uh, across the DOC, we we could tell from a lot of that research and what we were hearing from people that the conditions were um, were, were the same. Like you know, whether you're going to a max facility or a medium or a low facility, they're treating especially coronavirus like the the exact same way across the state. Um, so it can't be that there's just a facility that's um, choosing to break the rules or not be, um, not follow the, the correct procedures, it, you know, very, very clearly indicates that, that, um, that those instructions are coming from the administration. Um, and so we think that that, at least I think that that's like a very important thing to be able to, um, report and actually like acknowledge and, and compile to, to actually, you know, prove that it's not just one facility, it's not just one person that's claiming this, um, you know. Yeah, the problem is overall. And an, another aspect of what we were doing with the clemency waiver is to make it easier for the governor to, you know, approve them. Uh, we typed up summaries, brief, like one paragraph summaries for each person who submitted the waivers so that they didn't have to go through all the paperwork. I mean, of course, all of this information was just ignored by the state, but we did send like, so they could very easily just go down the list and see like, oh, like this person is 70 years old and has RA and asthma and sleep apnea and probably shouldn't get COVID. You know, like we tried to um, make the information presented to the state as easily digestible as possible and it was still ignored. Um, about a month and a half ago, somebody from Governor Evers' office emailed Peg and asked for this information. And, you know, she redirected them to the website and told them, like, you know, here's where you can find it. Here's all the things. But to my knowledge, there is yet to be like a mass um, clemency release in Wisconsin, at least. In addition to centering the voices of incarcerated people, Ty and Jim stressed the importance of direct action especially for organizers on the outside who have better access to information, resources, and people. When the secretary for the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, Kevin Carr, proved his failure to prioritize the health of people incarcerated in Wisconsin's prisons, even in the midst of a pandemic, Ty and Jim took it upon themselves to hold him and other members of the state government accountable. We, we like went out to the secretary's house um, the first week after when, when COVID like shut down in Wisconsin and we're um, harassing. We had, we had a little bit of an occupation outside of his house for like five days. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, Ty and I and, and one, uh, there were like three or four other people who would come and go, um, but it was, it was good. We weren't there uh, day and night, all night, but we were there from basically like what, like 6 a.m.? We caught him when he was getting his mail and or when he was getting his newspaper and making his morning coffee and yelled at him a bunch of men. But then we waited until he got home and then 
continued into the evening till dark. Because um, yeah. he, refu- he refused to, you know, to make these changes that he could very easily make as the head of the DOC. He could very easily have done so many of these things, um, but he just refused to. And, and they, they, the, you know, he was obviously appointed by the, the newly elected, well, not at this point newly elected, but the Democratic governor who took over from obviously Scott Walker. Um, and they just like to blame, they just blame all of the problems on like the Republicans in the legislature. And it's like, no, these policy changes are things you could do. You know, like they, they just pretend like nobody knows that or no one knows how it works. Uh, it's frustrating. There was like no other, um, no other thing more important than like highlighting our friends and family that are stuck in these prisons right now. I mean, we would hear from people every day, every day from facilities, um, terrified. We were terrified. And mm-hmm. I mean, so it, it became very clearly important that there was something that needed to be done. Um, and obviously there, you can't do normal things. No businesses were even open. We couldn't go. And uh, even there was no way to even contact or communicate with the governor. Um, so yeah, we, we chose to target the secretary because he lives and works in Milwaukee, which is here near where we are. Um, and was someone we could speak to, <laughs> we could actually get in touch with who, who could make some kind of change for, for on behalf of the, the people we represent. So, yeah, um, and the best and only way to do that is where we could, where we felt that we could stay the whole time and create some kind of um, disturbance was near his house. Um, we were, yeah, we had information that knew where that gave us his address and knew where he lived. So it just felt like the, the right option for us where we knew we wouldn't be breaking any um, health uh, regulations uh, at the time. And we could actually confront someone who could make something different. So, and, yeah. Yeah. And some of the other things that came out of that, that I think were really good was Uh, at least two of his neighbors didn't know who he was and like didn't know what he did. And so now they know, and now all of his neighbors know because we drafted a letter and sent it to all of his neighbors. Um, But in in addition to that, um, you know, because a lot of that action took place like on Facebook live um, because there weren't many people there. Like we, uh, on the first day we're encouraging people to come and join by the second, third day, I think this was, I don't remember the dates exactly, but I know, I th- think it was something like March 25th was when um, Governor Evers declared like stay at home policy or whatever. And I think we started on the 22nd. So it was obviously getting more and more um, severe. And so by the second or third day, we were just asking people to sign in to the Facebook Live and, and keep up with us that way rather than joining directly. But I think what what rolled out of that was um, because throughout that whole occupation, um, there were multiple phone calls with prisoners, people who were inside. Um, You know, there were scheduled interviews with people who were um, there at the time. So then there were like maybe three weeks after that, um, multiple press conferences via Zoom that were held with um, incarcerated people. Uh, to be able to speak about their experiences. Those 
were successful but couldn't be like sustained. Um, but we, yeah, we were able to like arrange speakers to call in to us from prisons on a couple of occasions, and then also to try to work with um, interested volunteers and family members across the state in a way that we, yeah, where we could all communicate. So yeah, we kind of held Zoom meetings and um, in two different fashions, one as a public press conference where press were able to answer, ask questions and hear from specific prisoners directly. In our previous episode, we learned from our guests about the importance of maintaining relationships with people on the inside through letter writing and other means of correspondence. They also shared with us how direct communication has changed and become more difficult during the pandemic. We briefly revisit our conversations with Ivan Califf from the Justice and Education Initiative, Casper from ABO Comics, and AK from Black and Pink. It has slowed down a lot of communications because the, the, uh, the men are not as free to move around. Well, they, not that they were free to just move around whenever they wanted to, but now the movement that they, uh, the little movement that they had before is now even more limited. So they just now are allowing the visits to, so, to slowly come back. They had stopped all visits. Uh, so the men and women inside couldn't get any visits from their families and friends and so on and so forth. Uh, they had closed all the school programs, um, all the vocational programs, all the, not that there's a lot of them, but um, so any, any programs that required uh, civilians to come inside and come in contact with the men and women inside, they, they, they stopped them. But now they're slowly bringing them back. It's interesting because, uh, you know, because of the slowdown, guys can't get on the phone. I have a couple of buddies of mine that call me all the time, you know, almost every day. So they get, some of them get 15-minute free calls, and the officer will only let them stay on the phone for three minutes, two minutes sometimes. Many are extremely short-staffed. Mail is backed up and backlogged um, because the mail rooms just don't have enough people in them to... I mean, I don't know how much everybody knows about um, prison mailrooms, but every letter that comes in is opened, read by guards, assessed for safety concerns, and then passed on to uh, the individual um, whose mail it is. So <laughs> not having a, you know enough staff to cover opening and reading and all of these things means that mail has been slowed down in some cases for over a month. Um, we're receiving letters still that were dated the beginning of June um, and people have still not received some of our correspondence from that time frame as well so things have really slowed down. Um, my pen pal told me about a month ago like hey um, I can't receive photocopied materials anymore um, which I never heard that like, um, and, and he, they were also cutting off his, his access to the newspaper. Like they weren't getting the newspaper anymore either. Um, and it felt like pretty clearly to me, like we don't want information about COVID to get in. Um, because at that point, a lot of folks that I know um, were publishing COVID-19 specific newsletters. were really trying to get as much information in as possible. Um, and if you're getting like a zine, like a 30 page zine, it's a lot harder for people to regards to proofread that and make sure it's like the right information versus like a letter. Um, so it felt like a way to really like restrict the 
power of the people who are inside um, and restrict their ability to protect themselves and ultimately just restrict their knowledge and access. Um, and that's that's a big concern. Um, so yeah, JPay, these programs are really notorious for using like a dire situation to, to make more money. Um, but yeah, th that's why like, USPS is so important um, and that's I've been having a lot of conversations about this like sh mail shortages are definitely like going to affect people inside probably the most um, not the most but like I, you know a lot uh, and the independence of the USPS is really important because um, you know it's not like at this point the USPS is accessible JPay and the prison system cannot um, price those out of access, you know, like you're still going to be able to send a, a, a letter, um, for 55 cents. Um, and that may not be true, um, soon inside prisons. Now we take a moment to hear from one of the talented artists who allowed us to share their work in today's episode, author and poet Shedrick Blackwell. Shedrick is currently incarcerated in upstate New York, sharing his writing with the public through those close to him, like friend of the show Ivan Califf. On Shedrick's behalf, Ivan shared with us a reading of a poem written about his experience during COVID-19. This is Today by Shedrick Blackwell. Today I felt like crying. I didn't want to weep or sob. I just wanted to give in to the lump in my throat, lean into the tightness in my chest, just take a breath and just cry. For some reason, I needed to feel the sting of hot tears streaming down my cheeks, down to that curve in my upper lip that shuttled the salty goodness of my frustrations onto my tongue, where it oddly quenches something in spirit. Today, I felt like crying. I think it had something to do with coming to grips with the fact that I'm being chased, stalked, hunted by an invisible enemy, an enemy that doesn't care that I have a young daughter who found me after 18 years of adoption and foster care. An invisible monster that doesn't care about my two beautiful grandchildren who have not gotten a chance to meet grandpa. Today, I felt like crying. I think it had something to do with becoming paralyzingly aware that I'm a sitting duck, a lamb waiting to be slaughtered. As I sit in my penetrable open air tomb, listening for a beast that doesn't make a sound, on the lookout for a spook that doesn't show himself, that bears his teeth and strikes under cover of touch. Today, I felt like crying. Man, today somebody told me that one person I know tested positive. He's a friend of mine. Today, the news said it wasn't, matter of, it wasn't a matter of if. It was a matter of when it would be me. Today, I realized I was afraid. That I'm afraid that I won't get a chance to say goodbye. Today... I felt like crying. I didn't want to weep or sob. I just wanted to give in to the lump in my throat, lean in to the tightness in my chest, take a breath, and just cry. 
So I did. And I wasn't afraid anymore. Thank you, guys. Again, that's from my buddy, Cedric Blackwell. He's in Kasaki Correctional. Over the past several months, the public has certainly become more aware of how incarcerated people are uniquely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. This public pressure forced the hand of government officials at both the state and federal level, many of whom claim to be implementing changes that would ensure the safety of people detained in prisons, jails, and detention centers. So how has the COVID-19 situation in prisons changed since receiving international news coverage and formal acknowledgement from members of the state and federal government? According to the Marshall Project, a record number of more than 25,000 incarcerated people tested positive for COVID-19 during the week of December 15th alone. Considering that many prisons only test a portion of the total incarcerated population, we can reasonably conclude that the spread of COVID-19 in prisons has been worse over the past few months than ever before. This seems to demonstrate a devastating truth as well as a fundamental reason to abolish all prisons. There is nothing that can be done within the confines of prison walls to really keep people safe. Well, I didn't get sick, but a friend of mine who I knew from Sing Sing, he got sick. I think he got a COVID-19. And <clears throat> he's alive now, but that was the last time I saw him because I, I came home in April. So we were all inside the yard, you know, working out, doing what we do, staying healthy, playing handball, stuff like that that, do, that guys do. And we were told that there was an announcement that we have to go back to the unit. Our housing was called back to the unit. Like you guys got to go back. When we went, when we came back to the unit, we were told that our unit is under quarantine. We cannot leave the unit. We have to stay right here. Commissary would come to us. The mess hall food would come to us. We cannot leave the unit. We cannot go anywhere. The reason for this was that they said someone on the unit has tested positive for COVID-19. So what happened is there was this morning, we woke up, a friend of mine, he was sick. He had fever. We said to him, yo, you feeling all right? He's like, no, I'm not. So we said, go to sick call. So sick call is what you, is your avenue for going to the nurse, the doctor, or whatever they label themselves as. So what happened is he put in for emergency sick call because sick call, you have to drop the night before to go to sick call. Sick call is um, four days a week, by the way. He was... Given the um the opportunity to go to emergency call, which he did, and when he went to emergency call, that's the last time we saw him. We only heard that he was tested positive for the COVID nineteen. We were told we we would not be able to leave the unit anymore. We would be under quarantine, and we were told that when for the guys who were in the rooms, you have to um you could stay inside of your room and not wear the mask, but the minute you come outside of your room, you have to put your mask on. It was mandatory now, even though a lot of the the, the guards. Or officers like you know COs like you call them, they didn't wear a mask. They didn't adhere to none of that stuff. They didn't believe in that stuff, so they did not. So in any event, um, they did them. We tried our best to protect ourselves because we were the fish in the fishbowl, and we understood the gravity of the situation. When I think of people who are stuck in Wisconsin prisons, like. Um, 
I believe his name is Richard Harlan. He's been um, eligible for, for parole for 25 years, and or Harlan Richards, actually, is I think his name, Harlan Richards. Um, and yeah, model citizen has, um, you know, been uh, yeah, uh, been promoted to the like highest working position in his prison that he could serve as. Um, but yeah, won't be won't be released and hasn't been released for that for like 25 years um, for no for no apparent reason other than he is a benefit to the to the DOC as that type of a worker and as someone who is a model citizen. Um, yeah, I mean he has a number of health issues. Is older retirement age. People like that we we were told by the DOC wouldn't be released because. Um, they would have a negative effect on the, you know, uh, the, the Wisconsin economy. Um, that potentially they would be job-seeking um, citizens and take a job from someone who wasn't formerly incarcerated, and for that reason, he wouldn't be released. Um, so yeah, like that was that's just an example to, in my mind that stands out. And there are number there are a number of of other people that fit in Harlan's same category of health risk, age, and um, no no risk to the the no, no like visible risk or understandable understandable risk to the to society. Um, yeah, yet still we we find them um, incarcerated. That story is really similar to a lot of people um, a lot of people who fall in the category of old law. Um, prisoners, which, uh, Ty, please correct me if I'm wrong, but old law is pre-truth and sentencing, so that means that they're still eligible for parole. But the problem is that there's only, there's a finite number of these uh, people left, and the parole board doesn't want to uh, actively start releasing them because then they won't have a job anymore because they're the parole board. Um, obviously a fairly cynical way of looking at it, but I don't really, you know, you look at some of these, um, some of the instances where people have been denied and you just, you can't, it's hard to see another, it's hard to see it from another angle. Um, you know, I heard, uh, you know, I heard a, a story from somebody, uh, not directly from the prisoner, but um, from somebody who knew the prisoner that he had written down. I forget what the town was called, that he was going to be, if he was paroled, he was going to be living in this town with his sister. And the the board had misread the town and they thought it said Nashville, Tennessee. And they said, well, we're not going to parole you to another state. And he was like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, I forget what it was called in Wisconsin, not Nashton, Wisconsin or something. And they're like, oh, well, denied any, you know, they just still denied him, even though their initial their initial claim for denial was that he was potentially going to be out of state. Once proven wrong, the denial stood regardless of, of you know, without further uh, evidence or, or reason. And so instances like that just keep occurring. Um, and those are obviously, you know, really hard to hear about and uh, hard to consider, especially when, like Ty said, we're at 120% capacity and it's really just it's time to get people out. There's never been a better, a, a more opportune time to get people out. And they're still just not taking those steps. In closing, our guest spoke to us about how mass incarceration impacts our society at large, from the economy to our families and communities. 
as well as the importance of breaking down the stigma of being incarcerated. Here are some final thoughts from Blair, Ty, and Jim. When someone gets sentenced to time in prison, he's not doing time by himself. His family is doing time with him. So his family is treated in a specific way as well as him constantly. People need to realize that prison has an economy that flows inside, meaning when someone does something in prison that the authority considers contrary to the rules in prison, he is given a misbehavior report. If he's found guilty of the charges, because it lists charges that they give him, which is in accordance with the prison handbook. If he's found guilty of those charges, then he is charged $5 out of his account. He has to pay the facility $5. So it depends on the amount of years you have under your belt in prison, the amount of ticket you cost, that's how much money you've given the state. Your people there for 20 years who've caught 40, 50, 60, 80 tickets, multiply that by five, and you see how much of your money the state has taken from you. So a lot of people were against the idea of this whole social distancing thing and people were trying to fight the best way they can or speak out the best way they know how, but they could not at the risk of being given this misbehavior report and being charged $5 because the $5 is not coming from you. Nine times out of 10 is coming from the money your family gave you because the state, pay, the state pays what, 10 cents an hour? For certain programs and for a GED, you will earn $7.50 per week. Imagine if you lose $5 out of that. That's $2.50 you have left. So it's so many different um, inequities that occur inside the prison system itself. And the idea that, oh, you know, these men are just doing time and they have done what they've done and they deserve to do time. Even if you agree that, okay, they've done what they've done and they're doing their time, there's so much that comes with just doing the time, quote-unquote. You know, and, and like I said, one of the things is um, the continued extortion of families by the prison system with these $5. No person should be or should be the crime that they committed or that you know that that your whole life should not amount to or come down to one one point in time um and so yeah like this, the technically the justice system has served its purpose and already punished them for a crime while like no not a single individual was was sentenced to um, a disease to getting um, an illness and being at risk of dying from that illness. I mean, our focus was on the fact that the prison systems are grossly overcrowded and there's no one segment of the population that can solve that, like releasing one segment that can solve that problem. So if you just look at uh, nonviolent offenders, if you just look at um, upper age prisoners, you are not going to solve the problem. There has to be, there has to be, um, you know, a different way of looking at what, how, who could be released or whatever if we're talking about coronavirus itself. So. Not only does it like create this, um, this binary between, you know, violent and nonviolent, but I think 
the fact is that all of these people are in prison regardless of what they did. And so like, it's not a bargaining chip with the state because the state doesn't care whether this person sold an ounce of weed or this person killed a person or whatever the situation may be. So I think, you know, like I, I, just as Ty was speaking, I was thinking about this. There's a facility in Milwaukee called the Milwaukee Secure Detention Facility. 86% of the people in there have not committed a new crime. They're on a crimeless revocation. Um, there's a new word for that that they don't, they technical rule violation or something. Some word that makes it sound like, well, actually they did do something wrong, but it's a crimeless revocation. They did not commit a new crime. They were late to a meeting. They had hot piss, whatever it was. Um, you know, even when you bring that per that percentage up to the to anybody, they don't care. Like they deserve to be in prison. So I don't think it makes sense as somebody who doesn't believe in prisons, I don't think that it makes sense to take that bargaining chip of nonviolent versus violent or, you know, whatever the situation is, they're justifying it. They found a way to do that. So we, we are unjustified. Like it is not justified. Like that's, that would be my point of view. Why don't you leave me alone? And go, go on home. Thank you for listening to The Art of Abolition. At the end of each episode, we highlight music shared with us by talented artists. Today's episode will end with A Little Bit by Robert Pollock. Robert is a singer-songwriter, visual artist, and advocate for the power of the arts in prison education and restorative justice practices. His music has touched audiences from Carnegie Hall to the Obama White House. And as a visual artist, he illustrated the picture book for children of incarcerated parents, Sing Sing Midnight, which is used in therapeutic settings around the country. He is currently the prison writing program manager at PEN America. This song, A Little Bit, is about his pandemic experience, an ongoing effort alongside his wife to sew masks for people on Rikers Island. This episode was produced by Jason Bowen, Rosalind Huff, Adam Klug, Kasha Melendowitz, Olivia Marquis, Annie Ng, and Mackenzie Turgeon with the Abolition Collective. To engage further with the organizations, people, and resources in this episode, go to at Art of Abolition on Instagram or the Abolition Collective website to connect and contribute. Special thanks to our guests, Blair, Ty, and Jim, and to Amiri Tella, who produced the music for this episode. You can find more information about their work in the show notes and in the description. Thanks for listening and being a part of our community. So we planted a garden with the plants we could find. Lavender lettuce, rosemary, and thyme Joined us, see us say early So we wouldn't miss it this time Got on the waiting list To get local meat Not totally harmless But straight from the farmers We questioned all the assumptions We hold in our society Oh, and we swept the lot Sometimes
started composting food scraps to cut down our waste. Spent a lot of time zooming with folks far away. Went for walks through the neighborhood, visited parks, saw more people with masks off than masks on, and she fell in a hole. Sometimes we trip up and we're both working it out. This is tough stuff, we're both working it out. much as I had to cook back in prison. Now my wife's baking bread while I wash the dishes. News trickles in and I can't stop watching. It's like microtoxins. I donate to this and I donate to that. We donate our time and sew some face masks. Headed to people stuck in that trap on Rikers Island. Sat on the couch and my wife read all the names, so many names, so many names, all prisons and nursing homes, on the jobs and hospitals, so many names, we're left with pieces, brittle pieces, broken, fragile